beauty of this system that's been created, the beauty of creating markets around restoring the environment is one, it's technology forcing, right? You're seeing restoration get better. Two, you can attract really talented, smart people. People view capitalism and environmentalism as completely juxtaposed to each other. You can make great returns as an investor and have a major impact on the environment in a very positive way. The public rhetoric embraces none of what we're talking about today in this room. Right now, it's easier to get a permit to destroy resources than it is to get a permit to restore resources. And I think that that's crazy. <laughs> the regulatory body just doesn't have the time, funding, or personnel to actually do something about it. The idea that better funded regulators creates more regulation is not necessarily true. We were waiting on an, uh, a core site visit to check up on the growth of the vegetation and the core project manager broke his foot. They've been flatlined on their budget for the last five years. We're talking billions of dollars in economic value being delayed because of uh, a single broken foot. More regulators means faster regulation, which everyone around here wants. Environmentalists want, developers want. But how to get there? It's an article of faith among some on the left that markets and capitalism are the roots of all evil, while some on the right see pure free markets as the invisible hand of God and regulation as an intrusion into nature. Most economists will tell you they're both wrong because there's no such thing as either a pure free market or a marketless society. We need markets to get things done, and we need governance to keep markets honest. That's especially true in environmental markets, which almost always exist because of laws that require people to clean up their messes or reduce their pollution. To slow climate change, for example, we must put a cap on greenhouse gas emissions. But how do we enforce that cap? In the old days, we'd pass command and control legislation, where a regulator prescribes detailed step-by-step -step rules that have to be followed to the letter. But today we have cap and trade, which is a market-based mechanism that lets emitters find their own way of meeting the cap, and even lets them sell emission reductions to others if they reduce more than the law requires. The downside, of course, is that they also have to buy emission reductions from others if they fail to meet their obligations. If you're a regular listener, you know that the carbon market is just one of many environmental markets that are helping to fuel a $25 billion per year restoration economy. And that's just in the United States, as companies and municipalities rush to restore degraded rivers, forests, and other ecosystems on which our entire economy depends. Environmental markets, to be clear, don't replace regulation. What they do is provide flexibility in meeting and exceeding regulatory requirements.
They work, and they work well, but only if properly regulated. Unfortunately, regulators have seen their budgets frozen or even cut, ostensibly to reduce costs. The result, perversely, isn't just less protection, but higher costs of compliance for regulated companies. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know its ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth, we broke it, we own it. And nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields and not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet, or is nature herself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And today we address that impact by picking up where we left off in episode 42, namely, deep in the weeds of U.S. environmental policy. Specifically, we're looking at mitigation banking, which is just one part of the $25 billion per year restoration economy that I alluded to a few minutes earlier. Mitigation banking works because of laws that let cities, towns, or private developers impact a waterway or habitat but only under specific circumstances and only if they fix what they break. I caught up to five leading thinkers in the space, four of them practitioners, last month at the Ecological Restoration Business Association's third annual policy meeting in Washington, D.C. Hi, my name is Todd Bendor. I'm a professor in Sydney Regional Planning at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Todd Bendor has spent his entire adult life researching the restoration economy. In fact, he headed up the team that pegged the size of that economy at $25 billion, a number that he thinks probably errs on the low side. Hello, Jason Brenner, I'm Law and Policy Director for Riverbank Conservation, as well as a day-to-day practicing mitigation attorney. Jason Brenner is both an academic researcher and a practitioner. Murray Starkle, uh, founding partner and uh, managing member for Ecological Service Partners, a mitigation banking firm. Murray Starkle came to mitigation banking after 21 years in the Army Corps of Engineers, which helps regulate the waters of the United States. He was at the Corps when the levees broke during Hurricane Katrina, and he oversaw the restoration of Louisiana's protective mangroves and wetlands in the hurricane's aftermath. My name is Judd Hill. I'm Murray's partner with Ecological Service Partners. Judd Hill came to mitigation banking from the world of finance. As a managing director of HSBC, he oversaw the bank's water and industrial services investment banking practice. My name is Dave Groves. I'm the director of business development for the Earth Partners, uh, formerly at White House CEQ in the Obama administration. CEQ? Uh, Yes, the Council on Environmental Quality. Uh, It's the environmental arm of the White House, overseeing all the federal agencies that work on natural resources policy. You may recognize Dave Groves from episode 42, 
which focused on the history of water regulation in the United States, specifically the history of the waters of the United States, which is where we're picking up today. In episode 42, we traced the evolution of water protection from the Magna Carta to modern times. We saw how the 1972 Clean Water Act put the Environmental Protection Agency and the Army Corps of Engineers in charge of protecting the waters of the United States. We saw how the definition of waters of the United States, or WOTUS, changed over time, most recently with a new definition issued by the Obama administration in 2015, and how the Trump administration planned to roll that protection back by changing the definition again. I hope this episode will stand on its own. But if you want to learn more about the issues that we're discussing, I encourage you to listen to episode 42 and also to episode 45, which is called Nature Paid on Delivery. For now, what you need to know is that the U.S. Clean Water Act holds the Army Corps of Engineers and the U.S. EPA responsible for protecting rivers, streams, and wetlands. It also says the Corps can, in some cases, grant permits to developers who want to dredge protected waterways, but only after the developer has done the following. First, shown that its project has merit. Second, shown that it's doing everything it can to avoid damages and discharges. And third, shown that if it does damage or discharge, it will either fix what it breaks or restore areas of equal or greater environmental value in the same watershed. But how does it fix what it breaks? The first option under the law is to do the job itself. The second option is to pay environmental groups or others who promise to fix the mess in the future. And the third option is to buy environmental credits from green entrepreneurs who have proactively restored degraded wetlands and created mitigation banks or reservoirs of restoration. So, which method works best? In 2008, research by the National Academies of Science and the Government Accountability Office found that only one of those three methods consistently delivered good results, namely mitigation banking. As a result of that 2008 finding, the Army Corps and EPA formally endorsed mitigation banking over the other alternatives for fixing damaged wetlands. By the way, the section of the Clean Water Act dealing with wetlands is Section 404. So when you hear people in today's show saying 404, just think wetlands, which again we covered in detail in Episode 42. To summarize, the 2008 mitigation rule is the guidance that establishes mitigation banks as the preferred way of fixing messed up wetlands. WOTUS is the waters of the United States, which is the rule that defines what are and are not federally protected waters. And 404 means wetlands. So I began our conversation by asking how the Trump administration's plans for WOTUS will impact both water quality and the restoration economy. Ultimately, what I think what I saw and heard in this conference is the administration really wants to push down administration of the 404 to the state level. It has some good elements, but if you go back to the history of the Clean Water Act, when the states had primacy, it was not good. Because you end up having 50 different 
sets of functional assessment methodologies, 50 different sets of, of rules and, and how you actually do the work, right? Uh, and then you add, you add on top of that the federal standards that would be kind of over the top of it. You're going to have something that is totally unworkable. And, and didn't you also have in the old days not just that it was unworkable, but that states didn't care what flowed out of them; they only cared what flowed into them. Exactly, right. yeah. exactly. Because you get to the state boundary, which is we know the, the so the core is built in, and USGS and EPA are built on ecosystems and watersheds, whereas state lines sometimes do follow watersheds. You know, but uh, the, very often that state line will be the actual water feature, and so who has primacy and who has a responsibility? And so not in my backyard kind of issues always uh, will, will come to play if you let the states have primacy. Now, there are instances, clearly, you know, states like Florida, uh, I think Minnesota, where they've exerted jurisdiction above and beyond with the federal jurisdiction. And from our perspective in the industry, that's a good thing. And I think from the environmental groups, they like that. But obviously, the farmers, who are probably the biggest component, push or people pushing against expansion of the waters of the United States, uh, it's not so good. What I think was actually really interesting about the proposal um, was really, I think, what they what they tried to do was this economic assessment, and it really was a non-economic assessment. Todd Bendor, you may recall, knows a thing or two about economic impacts. He spent his professional career analyzing the restoration economy. And the economic assessment that he's referring to was central to episode 42. The gist is that administrative rules like WOTUS can only be created or changed in accordance with something called the Administrative Procedures Act, which requires a detailed and credible analysis of the economic pros and cons of implementing those rules or making those changes. And they essentially said there's, there's no significant impact on the industry. Um, and they quoted uh, the 2015 study that, um, that I led on the size of the mitigation industry. And they said, well, <clears throat> it's, it's just, it's, it's going to be fine. <laughs> I mean, it's very hand wavy. Um, and I think that, you know, overall, this, this is going to be a huge problem because made no effort to actually do an economic assessment and actually understand the extent of the changes that are really going on to environmental restoration industry. Yeah, not only did they not look at the positive impact that the mitigation industry plays uh, on the economy broadly, all the jobs it creates, um, et cetera, they also didn't look at any of the positive externalities of wetlands generally, flood mitigation, um, water quality improvement, water quantity improvement, uh, wild, wildlife habitat, etc. They just zeroed all of that out, which is actually a clear violation of the Administrative Procedure Act. Uh, so they're going to be in, in trouble there in terms of uh, court challenges. If you talk about an economic assessment, there's two types, right? And there's two real camps. Um, the first is uh, what, what David's talking about, right? This kind of economic benefit assessment. What are the kind of ecosystem service impacts of this decision? Flood retention, 
habitat, so on. But then there's this, and this is a direction we were really interested in going in, which is kind of what prompted this 2015 study, which was, you know, what are the, the, the economic impacts, meaning jobs and kind of value added to the economy and total income of this industry. So when you say the video game industry is X billion dollars, that's essentially, that's the economic impact of the actual industry. And there's really, outside of the study that we did, there's there's been no mechanism to actually understand the size of this industry because it's actually it's not it's a sector it's spread across 50 different industries from real estate to nurseries to earth moving and so it's been something that's really hard to track in the green economy so i think you know you put those two factors together the economic impacts and the economic benefits and i don't know how you can't find an impact <laughs> of 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 WOTUS. So, WOTUS clearly impacts the U.S. economy, because restoration isn't just an industry, it's an entire sector. Removing wetland protection might improve the bottom line of some industries, but profits aren't jobs. In fact, they're often the opposite, because companies can save money by dumping their garbage on other people's lawns or not fixing what they break. While lots of people, including some Democrats, say that the Obama administration's 2015 version of WOTUS was overly complex, most environmentalists fear that the Trump administration's plan to roll back that protection will leave vast swaths of wetlands vulnerable, which could endanger up to 80% of the country's drinking water. Murray Starkle, the Army Corps vet who's seen these water issues from all sides, isn't so sure. My experience in the Corps of Engineers, understanding how WOTUS will be implemented and ultimately pushed out to the field and regulatory project managers, is an entirely different thing. Um, I think there's a good chance that we'll go through all these iterations of trying to figure out where it's going to go, and in the meantime, we'll stay at the status quo. That could be years in the making. And he points out the Army Corps already chooses not to protect some intermittent streams, which means the overregulation that some people complain about might not even exist. People are worried about the ephemeral intermittent streams. There are already issues with ephemeral intermittent streams. You go to the Powder uh, River Basin in Wyoming, the Corps does not exert their authority over ephemeral intermittent streams for a lot of the strip mines out there. Because they look at it and they go, look at the, the water that's flowing through it. it. It is so rare that they actually have water flowing through those, those, those features that they determine they're non-jurisdictional. So I, th- I think it's, you're going to see on the margin. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, that's what, something that, that surprised me, too, is just because something's protected doesn't mean it can't be impacted. It means that it has to be permitted first. And but you're saying a lot of a lot of these ephemeral streams. Not only it's not even that much. They look at that and they say it's not even enough for us to to exert our authority over. Yeah, because there's there's judgment and there are different. As you get back to the functional assessment methodology, there are 38 districts. There are 38 separate functional assessment methodologies, and so it, we as in our pra- in our practice have to be familiar with those before entering an area. And in each of those areas, there's judgment on whether those are jurisdictional or not, and how they're going to protect them or not. In other words, 38 Army Corps districts might not be as much of a mess as 50 individual states, but it's still a challenge, and one I'd like to spend a whole episode on. If you'd like to hear that, or if you just want to hear more Bionic Planet, then you can help me deliver that by giving me a solid five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through. That matters, because the more stars I get, 
the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. You can also help me by becoming a patron at bionic-planet.com or patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. There you can support me for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. Finally, you can help just by accessing me through the right podcatcher. Namely, access me through the Radio Public app. That's Radio Public, like public radio, but backwards. They automatically pay me a few pennies for every listener who hears the show all the way to the end. And that adds up. Another issue that came up at the Herba Policy Conference is the issue of unbundling, stacking, and rebundling, which are fancy ways of saying that you're trying to support multiple ecosystem services coming from one piece of land. Or as Todd Bendor explained, Unbundling is the modeling, the ecology, the process of separating these different credit sources, and then stacking is actually the act of selling them separately. Basically, our regulatory systems didn't evolve in nature. They evolved in Congress and the courts. So waterways are regulated by one group of entities, air quality by another, and endangered species protection by another still. For accounting and regulatory purposes, we break apart impacts on air, water, and habitat, but they all really come from holistic ecosystems. Now the Trump administration is looking to bundle related environmental credits, namely two types related to water, specifically those generated by restoring degraded wetlands and other water bodies and those generated by reducing agricultural runoff. The specific proposal is fairly new and focused on water-based services, but it's part of a longer, larger discussion around bundling things as diverse as carbon offsets and wetland restoration. We decided to unpack the whole shebang. There's a lot of issues that are kind of all ironically bundled together here. Um, Basically, I mean, the first is... um, what is the credit? What are you actually trading here? And in the the context of 404, this kind of mitigation wetland stream mitigation markets, you're trading ecosystems. You're trading something which is fundamentally bundled. And so you can't take out water quality. You can't take out carbon sequestration. It's fundamentally part of that wetland credit. If you add some sort of above and beyond a measurable additionality to those wetland credits. And in theory, you can you, know, you could add water quality credits. You know, hey, I'm planting at a higher tree density, so all of a sudden I get, you know, carbon credits I could sell into California's, you know, AB32 market, this kind of thing. AB32 is California's cap-and-trade market. And you can, in fact, generate credits for AB32 by saving or restoring degraded forests. But Bendor used a word there that we have to emphasize additionality. It's a pillar of environmental markets. To earn an environmental credit, you have to do something additional to business as usual, which means you can't just say, oh look, my wetland is also reducing agricultural runoff, because that's one of the things that wetlands do. And if you restored a wetland and got paid to do so, you probably already got paid for that ecosystem service. The Trump administration has caught a lot of heat for trying to roll back WOTUS. But with its new proposal, it clearly wants to increase the value of wetlands and other riverside ecosystems 
that reduce runoff directly into waters. Because this proposal is so new, we didn't have a chance to dive deeply into it, but we did get into bundling more broadly. So when we wrote about this, we, we talked about three really distinct problems. Um, <clears throat> the first was just really practical, which was, you know, historically, and I know they've done a lot of work recently to try to fix this, the Army Corps of Engineers has not been amazing <laughs> at uh, data uh, keeping and curating um, and quality assurance. Um, and, and so if you don't have the ability to, to maintain a really solid, really dynamic database around just wetland credits, how are you actually going to do this between different agencies managing markets? The second thing was this idea of credit symmetry, right? So if you tell me, uh, you know, hey, I'm going to build a, a, a shopping mall, I'm going to need water quality credits. The problem is, though, you're going to have all of these other impacts. It just so happens that there's a water quality credit market. And so if you're not stacking, if you're not bundling on the impact side, and then you start bundling on the restoration side, you start to see just these, this total mismatch, this asymmetry of what you're actually counting. And then the third issue was, say this happens, say we get credit stacking, all of the, you know, the dreams come true of these multi-purpose banks. What happens when credit prices are totally out of whack with each other? So say all of a sudden, you know, carbon credits are an order of magnitude more valuable than water quality credits. You're actually going to have these markets start to shape how these ecosystems are developed. You now would have every incentive to, to build just Everything's going to be a swamp. Everything is going to, you know, have have uh, you know a forest, you know, a woody vegetation component. That's the type of thing, and, and and this is something that's much longer term an issue. But you could absolutely run into a situation where, from a regulatory perspective, you're no longer thinking about the ecosystem. You're thinking about the ecosystem as just the sum of these these parts, and and some of these parts become much more valuable than others, and therefore the market ends up literally shifting how restoration works. That's what we were really concerned about. And how do you combat that? Would there be standards involved? I mean, this is the thing though, is it's not for one market. So who controls any of these standards? I mean, this, this is what it could devolve into if there's state-run markets, if there's federally-run markets, there's habitat, there's, and they're all allowed to work together you know, who's coordinating the standards. This, it can turn into, you could very easily yeah. see this could turn into a nightmare. And, and we were really excited about stacking because by valuing these ecosystems for all of their components, restored land becomes very valuable compared to, you know, agricultural land or residential land, something else. So it, that, that was the impetus. I think that's why a lot of people are excited about this. But you've got to answer all of these questions before you can just leap into the system. So, so in the meantime, you know, we as practitioners are doing things that, that we're trying to make common sense of them. So, for example, in Louisiana, we've got projects where we're doing large-scale marsh restoration. And when we mobilize that dredge to take that material from the Mississippi River, this is the primary dredge site that we're going to borrow it from, we would like to restore maybe a thousand acres that's going to be restored and will be paid for through outcome-based performance contracts with the state of louisiana as offsets deep water horizon to the spill 
But while we're mobilizing that dredge, let's do another 1,000 acres that might be a natural resources damage assessment and restoration, a NERDAR. And just for a moment, let me, let me say NERDAR again. NERDAR is the legal process that federal agencies, states, and indigenous governments use to evaluate and fix the impacts of oil spills, hazardous waste dumps, and ship groundings on natural resources both along the nation's coast and throughout the interior. So many people say nerda. You know why? Not a lot of restoration happens. That final R is important. So, to get up my soapbox. So, <laughs> we may do it under that scenario. We may do one mobilization to 1,000 acres of outcome based performance contracts, 1,000 acres that could be a nerdar mitigation bank, but that mitigation bank could also be a 404 mitigation bank. Now, you're not stacking those credits per se, but you are. You're building one project that has two splits, but it's, it, it, you know, as, and that's one of the biggest things from the economic side. People look and say, you cannot sell that same acre for two separate purposes, but you can bifurcate that acre, or, or you can, it, it, it's literally just an accounting ledger uh, pro- process. Similar, as Todd brought up, we really have a horrible accounting system right now with rivets in the core and managing 404. Right. It, Can you tell Ribbits is the... Uh, oh, good what Lord. Is, what does it, stand uh, for? it stands for Regulatory In-Lieu Fee Banking Information Tracking System. Wow. I think. Wow, yeah. <laughs> I think. That's my best guess, but, you know, it's Ribbits. Uh, and, and just for example, Ribbits is supposed to track In-Lieu Fee uh, transactions. In most cases, it doesn't track it very well. As we know, in Luffy is, is a whole different program where you, you actually, the, the in Luffy uh, entity takes the, the revenue in place uh, you know, for, to offset a permanent impact and then has three years to actually go out and do the restoration. Well, you go look on Ribbits, you'll see a, an in fee transaction. It's not in linear feed or in acres, it's in dollars. And so you try to run your numbers and go, well, let's see what that market looks like. Oh, gosh, what's this 123,000 linear feet? No, it wasn't. It was $123,000 because it hasn't applied to linear feet because they haven't built the project yet. So you get those little weird data anomalies. Now imagine adding on top of that, we're going to track NERDAR. Uh, mitigation, which is done through a DSA, and then we're going to do a DSA is a discounted service acre year. So it takes into account the temporal nature of if you if there's a spill at, at time zero, it, you have to take into account that 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 time lapse from the time that the spill happened and the time that the the repair is done. Um, it, but you, you walk through all those things and. and and then add on top of that, states trying to take primacy. Now, instead of 50 states working you know, with, with multiple ecosystem regions, adding all the other different authorities, 401, 402, water quality, nutrients. It, 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 well, from the industry perspective, it might be something that, that we can exploit and find those inefficiencies in the market. And that's where you can get, you know, perhaps better margins. But from a regulatory perspective and an oversight and management and trying to hold it to high standards, good Lord. When we started as a country, uh, every state had its own currency. Uh, oftentimes, they're set up by central banks within the states. Uh, and you know, if you were buying a bundle of hay in Pennsylvania and you went over to Delaware, uh, you needed a different currency. We pretty quickly realized that that's an untenable situation. Uh, this is basically analogous to the to the problems that we that we're facing in the environmental credit market where uh, we give too much autonomy to the various uh, core districts and Fish and Wildlife Service regional offices etc to sort of create their own standards and then all of a sudden a credit in say the Wilmington district looks very very different than a credit in the Savannah district just over the border and as a result the the markets look very different the cost of the credits are very different the inputs that go into creating the credits are very different 
Um, and so in order to create a market uh, that is more sustainable and, and scalable, um, my humble opinion is that the Army Corps at the federal level would need to take a, a stronger role in creating national standards. Um, the same would be for the Fish and Wildlife Service, for uh, NOAA, um, for, uh, for NERDAR banking, et cetera. You know, and all these complexities that you hear about, as we've just discussed with various regulators and primacy and the regulations and stacking, whatever, that complexity costs time. What should take nine months, some take six, seven, eight years. And if you're just trying to function as an industry, it's really difficult because it takes time. Give it nine months or a year, but it shouldn't take seven, eight, nine years. I would say relative to that too, among all the dynamic um, matters that we see in the industry and I see in my practice, the impact on increased uncertainty, regulatory uncertainty on the influx of capital into our industry is I think rather compelling. Three to four years ago, I saw a lot more projected interest in getting into this space based upon assu regulatory assumptions, uh, political assumptions, and, and uh, other things such as that. I think the past two or three years have upended that to some extent, specifically with respect to capital, making assumptions about our industry and projecting uh, going forward. I believe I've seen a little less interest, a little more of a perception of risk. One of the wisest uh, mitigation practitioners I know, the very first thing he told me right after the election was, I think the biggest impact you're going to see is um, less capital influx. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't one of the, um, the justifications for going ahead with the new WOTUS rule that they're going to provide more clarity and simplicity, but it sounds like the opposite, everyone's <laughs> laughing, it sounds like the opposite is. I think there's a lot of skepticism about that. There's there's actually a certain amount of um, uh, irony uh, that, I, that I take as a lawyer, but in any event, where I'm going with this is, I think as uh, Murray said, uh, if you default to a regime that basically is composed of 50 fiefdoms as opposed to one central authority that's enforcing a baseline, that's probably going to produce uh, a great deal of uh, inconsistency and a lack of clarity. But he added, there is a bright spot. Um, and interestingly, maybe more of a return, one might say, if one really follows the industry over a long period of time, of space for small to medium-sized players who can be more nimble, who uh, uh, obtain other capital sources. I think that this has been true for a long time, and I think there's, there's you know, historical precedent to this. So um, if you go back to like 2003, 2004, when a lot of the analysis of what happened uh, after the solid waste agency of Northern Cook County Supreme Court case, right, Swank. Swank, as you may recall if you listen to episode 42, is a 2001 Supreme Court ruling that says the Army Corps should not protect abandoned quarries and similar pits because they don't share a significant nexus with navigable waters. And the reaction to it was interesting because it created this huge amount of uncertainty. What is regulated? What is not regulated? And so in the last day of the Clinton administration, they actually had to release essentially a, uh, I can't remember if it was an executive order or a memorandum that essentially said, hey guys, guess what? Like there still is a Clean Water Act. Just because we've eliminated a lot of uh, area from federal jurisdiction, that does not mean that you know, the, 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 there, there is no law anymore. 
And so what you saw was in, uh, in Chicago, um, a lot of these counties reacted by saying, you know, geez, we've had flooding problems in the past. We were relying on the feds to regulate this. Um, if the state is not going to immediately start to regulate, we are. And so it wasn't even just the 50 states reacting to this. It was literally counties and counties can only regulate within their borders. It was a paper that came out in 2006 that looked at this and historically the geography of wetland and stream markets in Chicago, you literally had areas where uh, a mitigation bank could sell to a third of the county rather than in the entire watershed where it was located. And there are lawsuits as a result of this. You saw just a, a huge fragmentation and almost a destruction of this industry in Chicago. And that I fear is, is the secondary, the indirect effect of this. States or counties that say, God, you know, I, we were relying on this, we're freaked out about it, let's start passing bad laws. Yeah, if we, <clears throat> if we think about other industries, the amount of capital that's flowing through them and, and is available. Um, we're talking institutional dollars, public pension funds and insurance companies, et cetera, in the, in the trillions of dollars. And just to use an analogy with, say, um, the growth of wind and solar, industrial wind and solar, they have the benefit of having a product that has an inherent value. A kilowatt hour has an, has an inherent value in the market. Um, so there's, there is a fundamental difference there, but it's a pretty new uh, industry in terms of the technology hasn't been there very long um, versus, you know, wetland banking uh, is probably the most advanced environmental crediting market on the planet. Um, and yet from the scale of other industries that have been around as long as wetland banking, it's, it's still quite small. And it's because the big institutional players, they're looking at the risk return profile of these investments and they're keeping their capital elsewhere. And it has a lot to do with the lack of scalability in the marketplace because of, in the context of 404 banking, the 38 different core districts all having, all even, all essentially being individual fiefdoms and sort of setting up their own uh, SOPs, et cetera. It's weird because typically you think of federal regulation and state regulation and not this kind of other thing. This other thing is the Army Corps of Engineers. It's a very good idea in this space that I don't think was executed correctly. Having this non-state regulatory thing, this entity, um, that actually has some relevance ideally to water is a really good idea. People have been arguing this for decades. We should have watershed-based governance. And one of the questions is why don't, why don't Army Corps of Engineers districts actually conform to large-scale watersheds? <laughs> that's, a, that's one question, um, because that might be a really good idea. Quick clarification. Many of the districts are structured along watersheds, as Murray Starkle pointed out earlier, but not all of them. The 2001 National Research Council report on mitigation uh, talked about the ability of Army Corps districts to plan and they can spend, I think it was like up to 20% of their budget planning. And as far as I know, none do. Uh, but that kind of planning could be incredibly useful, right? right? Really thinking about what are the impacts, what are the trends, on and on and on. And it's kind of been left to people like me to, to try to step in and say, you know, hey, are you guys thinking about the big picture in your own district? Or are you just, you know, 
you're just a permitting process. Well, the, the problem in, in that, in, in, from the planning perspective, they do do a lot of planning in the civil works uh, area, whether you know uh, managing our nation's water infrastructure, so our navigation primarily, and flood control, flood protection, whether it's riverine flooding or hurricane storm protection, or harm. Uh, they can't call it protection anymore. It's hurricane storm damage risk reduction. <laughs> really unfortunate acronym. But it's the idea is that you cannot 100% protect, you just can reduce risk. They do a lot of planning, but you're right, they don't do a lot of planning on the regulatory stuff. Uh, they do have an ecosystem planning center, but, but that's on building their own project with federal money, not regulating the general public. And then they have this whole other function where they do their own environmental work for their own projects. And it's a totally different standard. Each district, when they do their own civil works projects, they're going to go build a flood control project. We had this in New Orleans. We were building large scale, $15 billion worth of levees and flood walls post-Katrina. Their mitigation for that has an entirely different functional assessment methodology than the regulated public. Why? because the regulatory body just doesn't have the time, funding, or personnel to actually do something about it. Because Congress does a very, very, you know, depending on which side of the, the ledger you're on, good job or a bad job of financing the regulatory branch of it, the, the whole regulatory program by a line item from Congress. If they give them too much funding, their concern is they'll have too many regulators and they'll over-regulate. If they don't give them enough funding, then their constituents are not going to get the permits they need to help our nation's economy. So they, they do that very, very fine line. They've been flatlined on their budget for the last five years. Well, the cost of living has not gone down, has, has not stayed flat, so therefore they cannot hire as many people because even the federal government increases their salaries and you know, they get an annual pay raise. Well, that just means you have less full-time employees to do the regulatory work. The gist is, should have a, a federal standard and it should be applied uniformly across all the regimes. And oh, by the way, an impact is an impact, whether it's done by the federal government or it's done by an, another entity, whether it's a state or a private entity, you should have one standard, right? And then, and then, then because you, you have that dichotomy on top of environmental credits and stacking and all the other ecosystem benefits you're trying to get to offset impacts. Environmental credits generally cannot pass from one environmental system to another, and carbon credits are, in a way, no different. But their environmental system is the whole planet, because a ton of carbon dioxide or methane or other greenhouse gas emitted in one part of the world has the same impact on global warming as a ton emitted elsewhere. Unlike water or habitat credits, carbon credits are, from a scientific perspective, universally tradable, although not all regulatory systems recognize all carbon offsets. I know it's complicated, which is why most media only skip across the surface of this stuff, but it's also important, which is why I'm putting in the time to bring you into the weeds with this podcast. If you appreciate the work I'm doing, and if you think I'm doing a good job producing these episodes in my spare time, just think of what I could do if I had more time and a budget for an experienced producer or sound designer like those big-budget NPR and BBC podcasts have. The New York Times podcast, The Daily, has a full-time staff of 20, and that doesn't include the reporters who contribute to each episode. But I've just got me, working alone on weekends. If you want more Bionic Planet, then you can help me deliver it by giving me a solid five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through, or by becoming a patron at bionic-planet.com or 
patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. At either place, you can support me for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. Think of it like a magazine subscription, except that instead of me telling you what you have to pay, you can tell me what you think I'm worth. On top of that, you can help just by accessing me through the right podcatcher. Namely, access me through the Radio Public app. That's Radio Public, like public radio, but backwards. They automatically pay me a few pennies for every listener who hears the show all the way to the end. And that adds up. Carbon credits are universally tradable. You can sell carbon credits in the U.S. for for offsets in the European Union. We can't do that for mitigation. But why not? When you build a very large-scale restoration project, could you not be a, a carbon sequestration and generate those credits and have multiple purposes? The challenge is you multiple agencies, multiple regulatory bodies, um, and then even within itself in the 404 program, as we, as we just talked about, it's it's all over the map. Regulators believe that if they do things a certain way, they will get better outcomes rather than, for example, speed up the permitting process and have higher ecological standards. You can ask somebody, hey, I want you to do twice as much planting, I want you to do twice as much work, but by the way, I will cut out this huge cost center that I currently incur on you. Most of the bankers I've talked to, to have been like, oh, that, that'd be great. I would do better work if I could get this done faster because I wouldn't have all of this dead weight loss. This is money that is going to banks and that is just evaporating through time value of money, right? It's just lost into, into space. And how do we get rid of that? And I've argued that that's really what a, a main thrust of what the regulatory program should be trying to do is if, if they're going to force mitigation providers to spend money, it should either be on more or better mitigation, not on waiting. So if I understand correctly, you're saying increase standards, make make them tougher standards? Well, it, 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 not even necessarily tougher standards, but essentially, you know, have a standard, stick to the standard, and figure out ways of, of speeding the permitting process. What regulators are saying is it's complex, it should take a long time, it should be difficult. You don't want to disincentivize people that are doing the best version of the work that you're requiring. If you're building a $20 billion LNG plant and maybe 2 to 3% of that cost is going to go to get your appropriate permits, 404, etc., and, and you can't begin construction until you get your permits in hand, that's an important gating item. You've got $20 billion hanging there, you know, held up by maybe you know, $10 million bucks of mitigation. And they care about certainty and schedule and not about price. You could just triple the price. Just give them to me next year rather than five years from now. Um, we saw yesterday a staffer from the Army Corps put up a slide uh, where they had asked the Institute for Water Resources, uh, which is sort of a, th a think tank within the Army Corps, um, to look at how long it takes on average to permit a mitigation bank. Um, and I believe the number was somewhere around 1,400 days, and that doesn't actually start until the prospectus is submitted, which um, usually is already a year or more into the process from the banker's perspective. So we're talking five plus years to get a 
mitigation bank permitted. Um, and a lot can change in that time from uh, a market standpoint, you know, the, the, the various drivers of demand in the market from a macroeconomic standpoint, et cetera. And that adds a rather sizable layer of uncertainty to the process of developing a mitigation bank and therefore attracting the big uh, capital players into the marketplace. Having had the pleasure of, uh, of working with many different um, uh, mitigation operators over the years, I think if uh, everyone got in the room and, and uh, rolled up their sleeves and had an honest discussion about what would um, benefit the industry over the coming years, it probably would have something to do with uh, increase the budget for the regulating community, for the regulators, so they can hire more people and process matters faster. And number two, actually gravitate towards a stronger, clearer federal standard and a well-funded um, group of regulators. And that would probably do wonders uh, for our industry. And it's not a matter of devolving power to 50 different states. In my view, it's a matter of enhancing the federal floor and um, treating the regulators and, and resourcing them the way that um, uh, would produce faster outcomes, uh, facilitate capital entry, et cetera, et cetera. The argument right now is, well, we want to make mitigation cheaper and we don't want to hinder development kind of argument. And I think that it's, it's misinterpreting where the cost center is. The cost center, it's not, we're going to have more regulators, more project managers, and so we're going to be more regulated. That might not even be the issue. You maybe could regulate more. You just have to regulate faster. And, and I think that that's, that's a key idea and it's a key way to reframe this whole relationship where it's in this industry's interest to have incredibly high standards because it creates a, a barrier to entry into the market. It means you're not going to get the fly-by-night folks. Mm -hmm. You're going to get better work. It's, it's a race to the top in terms of standards rather than a race to the mm -hmm. bottom. A question on funding the regulators. You were, you were talking about what a small percentage of the overall cost mitigation actually is and that the weighting is, the, is so much more expensive. Can there be a regulatory cost embedded in the right. cost of, of compliance? I mean, like, I'm thinking of like the National Futures Association. It's industry funded and you know, the industry benefits from that. I think that would be ideal. There's some appropriations laws challenges that, uh, that exist right now where basically if, for example, the Army Corps of Engineers uh, charges a fee to process a permit, um, they don't have the authority to keep that money uh, in-house and sort of recycle it back into their own resources. They actually have to send it back to the treasury. Um, and, uh, and then they're appropriated uh, that funding through Congress at whatever rate Congress wants. Um, now, Congress could provide the Army Corps that authority uh, for example, the, the U.S. Forest Service has that authority through what are called stewardship contracts, where if they grant a logging concession in, in a national forest, some of that revenue that's collected through that concession can go back into that national forest and not go to the Treasury. Uh, but uh, basically, the Army Corps needs that authority from Congress, and Congress is uh, generally uh, not too excited to, to give up the power of the purse um, to the uh, regulated agencies. And, you know, relative to hiring, you know, more regulators, they got to go to Starbucks and hire people there that have type A, hyperkinetic, work hard, <laughs> you know, because sometimes they can be rather lazy. So uh, I think hiring the right people is important. Well, they're, they're government employees, and, and, and I've 
And you were you were one. I was I was one. So I and I understand that their their the ability to give them really good incentives just doesn't exist. So you know they they come in to do their job and and you know most of them get into the business because they they want to do the right thing. They're trying to protect our planet and and they know that they need to stay in that in that fine line because they've got a commander in the, in the Corps of Engineers perspective. They've got an army officer over the top of them who ultimately is graded on their effectiveness in getting stuff done and a lot of getting stuff done is for those members of Congress and congressional districts that they ultimately report to. So one thing that they can do, and they do it now on the on the impact side, is called Section 214 of Word 86 that allows for a public entity, so a port and ports and Department of Transportations, they can fund a full-time regulator that their job is to help them get their permits processed. If they're an equivalent version of that, that the National Mitigation Banking or IRBA, one of the, our a nonprofit or a 501c3 could say, we want to fund to process uh, mitigation faster. Let me just stop for a moment to unpack that. WERDA is the Water Resources Development Act, and Murray is saying that under WERDA, ports can, in fact, pay for their own regulation. So it's possible. If the federal government doesn't want to fund the Army Corps' regulatory activities, then maybe the regulated companies can pay a trusted third party to fund it themselves. In the long run, it could save them money by speeding up the permitting process. Pricing is just a matter of supply and demand, right? You know, mitigation can cost a lot. Why? Because it takes so long to get the supply in the market, if you could increase that. So we had a meeting with Colonel Clancy and his, and his senior civilian in New Orleans. Colonel Michael Clancy runs Murray's old Army Corps district, the New Orleans district. Also, while I've got you here, I should let you know that Murray is going to start talking about the 2008 rule again. Just to remind you, that's the 2008 mitigation rule, which means the one explicitly giving preference for mitigation banking over having companies fix their own messes or paying nonprofits to do it in the future. They got a lot of money put to them to to do a lot of work. And he looked out at the marketplace and said, I cannot do this work on the scheduling to do it because I cannot get the mitigation in place. So, well, you got a couple choices here. You can go do your own projects. Guess what happens when you do your own projects? You turn over the non-federal sponsor for operation maintenance. They don't perform very well. They typically don't do very well at all ecologically. You could increase the number of mitigation banks by approving banks much more quickly. That's something. If you could follow the rule, there's actually a agreement between EPA and the Corps written in 2008. If you find it on EPA website, it actually says draft 2008, but it's on their website. Still has draft at the bottom. 225 days is the time frame that it should take a mitigation bank to get approved. As David talked about, 1,400 is the average, and that doesn't include the prospectus phase. The agreement between EPA and the Corps of Engineers says 225 days that includes the prospectus phase. So if you could do that, you could solve a lot of problems. And one of the ways the government is thinking of doing that is getting rid of something called interagency review teams, or IRTs. These are teams of people from multiple agencies working together. Lee Forsgren of the Environmental Protection Agency told attendees that the public commenting period that all rules are subject to can serve the same function as IRTs. That suggestion, however, didn't go over well. Before IRTs existed, it used to be, okay, you took your permit to the Corps, and of course said, okay, now take it to the EPA. Take the EPA to EPA, said, now go take it to Fish and Wildlife Service, and the Fish and Wildlife Service take it. So the idea of the IRTs is a one-stop shop. 
the problem is it's supposed to work as a one-stop shop, but it doesn't. Internally, guess what it does? It goes from the core to the EPA. The 30 days to come and it comes back. Oh, they don't like this. Dot that I, cross that T. It goes back to them. Starts the clock again. Then the EPA. And it's supposed to be done in, a, in not a stepwise linear fashion, but it typically ends up being that way. Yeah, I, I, you hear these stories about, you know, uh, somebody puts in a, a bank prospectus, goes to the IRT, and you know they wait three months for the meeting, and uh, you know somebody's kid is sick, and so they can't have the entire IRT meeting, and it, there's tens of millions of dollars like hanging in the balance sometimes, and it's because of of something that simple. That's the kind of thing that just can't happen, right? So it's it's one of these, you know, I think there's a danger of throwing, you know, the baby out with the bathwater by, you know, eliminating the IRT. I think you just you could fix it. Um, the what you said, I think it was was insightful, right? The the idea that you've got this delay it's supposed to be 225 days. It's actually what what is that? Over three years, four years, something like that. Unbelievable amount of time. I mean, you think of like. Permitting a nuclear plant takes about 10 years. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, why should this take, you know, half that time? That's, that's kind of ridiculous. Um, so we did an analysis of this. And the key thing I think to keep in mind is that the delays aren't linear. The delays often don't make sense. And the reason for this is because this is an industry that's it's natural processes. There's a growing season. So I like to use the analogy of, you know, it's, it's uh, November, you need to put on a new roof and you need to go into this building permit process and say it's supposed to take two weeks and you, you're going to put on your roof and it's, that's going to take two weeks too. And you've got to do this before it starts snowing. Uh-oh, the permit took three weeks instead of two weeks. So rather than just, well, it's gonna delay you you know, one week to put on your roof. No, now it's snowing. Now you can't put on the roof. You've gotta wait until April in spring when the snow is melted to put on the roof. So that one week delay has now caused a you know, five month delay in the process. And so you would literally do anything to avoid that one week that would push you over the edge. To put a finer point on what Todd just said in terms of uh, an, an example of a delay like this. Um, there's a bank that shall not be named with in a core district that shall not be named. Um, uh, but there's a credit release that we are waiting on that has $12 million in economic value to us, the mitigation banker. Um, and uh, we have about I would say six to eight different permittees waiting on their permit that are waiting for this credit release uh, in order to get their permit, which have projects that are in a, a combined value of in the billions of economic value to the permittees. And we were waiting on an, uh, a core site visit to our bank to check up on the growth uh, of the vegetation there. And the core project manager broke his foot. And uh, we've now been delayed, um, you know, about, I think it'll be six weeks. And this, this credit release has already been delayed more than 12 months for other various reasons. Um, and so we're talking billions of dollars in economic value being delayed because of uh, a single broken foot. Now, I'm not blaming that core staffer for breaking his foot by any stretch, but, um, but the, a system where a single broken foot will, will result in billions of dollars in delays in economic value uh, is a broken system. Even uh, M Michael Jordan, if he broke a foot, 
in his heyday wouldn't cost that much. <laughs> I think this sector, too, is a bit of an anomaly from a regulatory perspective. I mean, I've been in this industry 35 years in environmental hazardous waste, wastewater, et cetera, and typically the issue is making sure the impacted party, the permittee, does what he's supposed to do, or you're going to fine him or do something, penalize him. In this sector, the impacting party is saying, just tell me what you want me to do. I'll write the check. You know, I got to move on. I'll comply. And so we got so much regulatory burden and, and getting to something that impacting party can purchase, i.e. the credit, that it really has a ripple effect through, through the economy. If you're building a $20 billion LNG plant and you have to wait three years because you can't get a 404 permit. I, I completely agree with that. I think there's a political view right now where it's like, well, we don't want to burden people with having to you know, offset their impacts. I don't think that's the issue. I think that this this is a rounding error in the cost of development for the most part. And this is not an area where given the environmental impacts that we are now seeing in terms of flooding, in terms of coastal climate issues, all these, we should not be cutting corners. You know, We should be maintaining high standards, requiring a heck of a lot of mitigation and making it easy to mitigate. Right now, it's easier to get a permit to destroy resources than it is to get a permit to restore resources. And I think that that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, it, from a either a 30,000 or a 3,000 or somewhere in between view, uh, the public rhetoric embraces n none of what we're talking about today in this room. The public rhetoric, you know, uh, on different sides of the ideological uh, uh, spectrum is uh, property rights. Right, its regulation is diminishing property rights and pick the pick Nevada, pick wherever. Um, and I think that what we're kind of getting at right now is one of the biggest problems that's not well understood and is certainly not featured in the public rhetoric is what is the actual regulatory process? How can we improve the regulatory process to diminish some of this sense of what part of my land is mine? What do I have to do if I uh, uh, impact a portion of my ranch, which you know we see all the time? And you know it might be mis the, the rhetoric is is might be misplaced likely is misplaced um and it's just fascinating you don't hear it in what seems to what's projected as the driving impulses behind regulatory change which probably missed the mark yeah um speaking of ideology so many environmental issues or natural resources issues sort of easily fall into camps the political right will um balk at too much regulation too much uh permitting or delays in um uh, in economic progress and the left sort of shout from the rooftops about um, loss of wildlife habitat etc um, what's unique about this particular industry is we kind of sit at the fulcrum between those two things um where you know we're creating tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of jobs, oftentimes in, in um, uh, rural economically depressed areas, um, uh, generating lots of, uh, of economic value um, to what we're doing, uh, while also uh, providing an expedited permitting process uh, to permittees, um, while also providing environmental protection, natural resources, protection and preservation that a modern society demands. The mitigation banking industry allows society from a clean water perspective to have its cake and eat it too. And uh, there's, uh, there's not very many uh, industries out there that have the ability to sit at that fulcrum and, and speak uh, uh, about things that both the right and the left care about. As I've been studying this industry, um, it's really occurred to me that 
the the beauty of of this system that's been created the beauty of creating markets around restoring the environment is one it's technology forcing right you're seeing restoration get better two i i i teach uh undergraduates and graduate students many of whom are studying ecology environmental planning and it's one of these things you know, i look at these kids and i'm like i would love for you to become millionaires i think it's amazing that you could actually have an industry that's competing with finance that's competing with medicine that's competing with law to have students that are graduating that then go into an industry where they can make a lot of money and you can attract really talented, smart people. And I, I love the idea. You know, I, I hope everyone at this conference is millionaires, you know, because you're, you're making money improving environmental conditions. And, and that's, I think, a really beautiful thing to attract talent and to create jobs, all these things that we want. In essence, doing well by doing good. Yeah, exactly. that's, that's, the, that's the slogan that we use because people view capitalism and environmentalism as completely juxtaposed to each other. You can make great returns as an investor and have a major impact on the environment in a very positive way. People respond to incentives, and there's fundamentally two different types of incentives. There's the carrot and the stick. And if we look back at the history of the modern environmental movement, um, the initial environmental laws, the bedrock environmental laws that we think of, the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, Endangered Species Act, National Environmental Policy Act, etc., primarily used the stick as the incentive. It was that, you know, you, industry, thou shall not pollute. And if you do, uh, you'll be heavily fined and in the worst cases go to jail. Um, but, but the problem is, is that you can only go so far with that. You can basically only create a baseline of the level of degradation that you're willing to accept in your society and um, uh, uh, build up from there. Whereas if you use the carrot method, if you allow people to do good and do well at the same time, um, you can create this restorative economy where people can make money by doing good and then they are incentivized to continue to do good. And the more good they do, the more money they make. Um, and uh, from, a, from just a purely economic standpoint, that's a, that's a much better system to have. Yeah, and as you pointed out, this thinking evolved over time. The regulatory challenges that we're talking about came from a regulatory system that evolved. It wasn't created. If, if, we, if we were building this regulatory system from scratch, we'd, we would do it completely differently. My, my final question is really a two-parter, which is, what would be an ideal regulatory solution to this, like a new regulatory agency that takes all this onto itself? Or, and the second component is, what would be a workable or achievable solution? What can be done to, to sort of you know, break all these bottlenecks? Well, those are, those are really tough questions. Uh, you know, uh, there's been talk about some of our members of Congress uh, uh, prior to the change over control uh, of getting rid of the Corps of Engineers, for example, and dividing up their authorities to different entities. Having been a practitioner on that side and managing very large projects like post-Katrina, hurricane storm to hemorrhage risk reduction system, if you give an entity the freedom of maneuver to do what they need to do, and, and by that I mean let them get the job done. One of the things they did, and David knows this pretty well, because we had to go to CEQ, uh, the Council of Environmental Quality, and get approval to do something different, because we had a system that we came up with the deadline that we we're going to have a new set of levees and flood walls built by 2011, and we made a decision in 2005 in the storm hit. We got alternative arrangements to NEPA compliance. 
What does that mean? It means you're still going to be compliant with NEPA. The National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, is a 1970 law that created the Council on Environmental Quality, or CEQ, and required all federal agencies to prepare environmental assessments and issue environmental impact statements before undertaking any significant actions. It's since been emulated around the world. And NEPA is a set of rules, and you've got all the rest of them. But we did it in a manner that we have to move very quickly. We don't have the luxury of going through an environmental impact statement and studying it, because we could have studied that system for decades, but the people of South Louisiana needed that system to be built in years rather than decades. So you can do things very efficiently with an agency if they're given them freedom of maneuver, if they're able to, to practically apply what could be done. So you take that construct and say, for the regulatory program and the framework, I don't think you need to necessarily create a new agency. You just need to enable that ag- the agencies that have that authority to implement. Things like streamlining the permitting process, perhaps getting rid of the IRT. I don't know if that's the solution, but certainly making them hold to a standard. So they're not going back and saying, well, dot this, I cross that T. As Todd talked about, we're not building nuclear power plants when you do restoration. And it should not take longer to get a permit for a mitigation bank than it is for a permit for an impact. Good Lord, it should be the other way around, right? So it, it, those kinds of things, making those much more efficient, I think the, the, the system we have could work when it's properly incentivized and the, the people that are implementing are fully enabled. I agree. I, I think that... Um Again, we shouldn't throw the baby out of the bathwater. Um, one of the issues with the Army Corps is it's the Army. And they're not about sharing information. They, they do everything they can to not. And I think that that's something that could evolve to, you know, hey, this is the Army Corps of Engineers, but, I mean, we're talking about wetlands and streams and water here. Um, I think there's a lot of work that could be done on the, the IT side to facilitate this. I think a lot of work could be done just on the the culture uh, of these interactions and and improving that. And I'm an optimist. I think a lot of these can get fixed in a win-win situation. I think that the idea that you've got better funded regulators creates more regulation is not something that's necessarily true. I think it's something that, you know, more regulators means faster regulation, which everyone around here wants. And I think environmentalists want, developers want, (laughs) you know, lower the transaction costs of this whole system. Let the system do what it's kind of designed to do. Um, I think any effort to do that, you you will see wonderful things happen. Uh, Philosophically, a lot of the authority was vested in the Army Corps with respect to these kinds of things because it has integrity because it's the army. It's not, a, it's not as subject to political winds blowing. And I think there's a certain beauty to use Todd's word in saying that it, the system does have integrity. It may be slow and cumbersome, but it's a good place to vest authority to review these kinds of things. Um, yeah, I mean, a couple of big questions you raised there. Uh, th- and this is pie in the sky thinking, but since we're there, um, the, the federal bureaucracy is, is the result of time and uh, various things that have happened throughout our history, from world wars to depressions to even just quirks of individual presidents. For example, why is NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, within the Department of Commerce versus Interior or somewhere else? Uh, I think the story goes something like Richard Nixon really didn't like his Secretary of Interior, um, and so he didn't want to give him any more authority. Would it make sense to 
reconfigure the natural resource agencies um, with across the federal bureaucracy. Right now, as I said, NOAA is within Commerce. You know, the Fish and Wildlife Service and the National Park Service are, with, are within Interior. The Natural Resources Conservation Service is, is, is within U.S. Department of Agriculture. The Army Corps of Engineers is within uh, Department of Defense. W- would the right hand talk better to the left hand if they're all within the same bureaucracy? Or is this just basically reshuffling the chairs on the deck of the Titanic? Not to say that the... Uh, you know, the federal government's sinking. But, um, you know, is is it going to be substantive or not? I don't know. But I think the, the quirks of the and the bifurcation of the, of the federal natural resource agencies doesn't make a lot of sense right now and could probably be rethought out. Getting more into the weeds on this particular industry, um, an aquatic resource in New England looks very different than aqu- an aquatic resource in in Utah. So there needs to be some amount of authority given at the local level to govern the resources to come up with the performance standards from a very technical standpoint. But there's a lot of administration that can be done at the federal level uh, that currently is not. For example, uh, you know, credit release standards, um, financial assurances, you know, having more consistency across the industry, I think would be able to reduce risk and uh, bring in more capital at scale to, uh, to the 404 uh, mitigation banking market as well as uh, other environmental markets. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is so many of the challenges you see in the delays in permitting is the is you know going back to that old saying that the 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 perfect uh, is, is the enemy of the good uh, so many times. And um, you know if we can take a step back and look at what we as an industry are trying to do and and create ecological restoration um, and you know most of the value that we create in terms of that ecological uplift is putting the conservation easement on the land. Um, and, and taking that land out of uh, the, ch- the you know, future chance of being developed. Um, uh, you know, so much more is just piddling around the edges and, and, and we, let the, we let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Dave Groves closing out this edition of Bionic Planet, which also featured Todd Bendor, Jason Brenner, and Judd Hill. If you like what you hear and want to hear more and better episodes, then give me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through. That's important because the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we've got to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet the climate challenge. We can do it if we all work together. Also, if you really like what you hear, consider becoming a patron at bionic-planet.com or patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. At either site, you can support me for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. Think of it like a magazine subscription, except that instead of me telling you what I charge, you can tell me what you think I'm worth. We covered a lot of territory today, and I know I could have worked in a bit more structure and layered in more explanatory stuff. But that takes time, and time is money. And on that mercenary note, I'm wrapping up this edition of Bionic Planet, coming to you today from Rotterdam in the Netherlands. Until next time, I'm Steve Zwick. Thanks for listening.